God's word to us this morning comes, begins in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Beginning in verse 26. Hear the consecrating word of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabah of the sons of Ammon and captured the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabah, I have even captured the city of waters. Now therefore gather the rest of the people together and camp against the city and capture it, lest I capture the city myself and it be named after me. So David gathered all the people and went to Rabah, fought against it and captured it. Then he took the crown of their king from his head, and its weight was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city in the great amounts. He also brought out the people who were in it, and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments, and iron axes, and made them pass through the brick kiln. And thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. We'll turn now to the epistle of Hebrews, chapter 12. And reading beginning in verse 18. For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched into a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those who did not escape when they refused him, who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. In this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you would now please turn to the back of your bulletin. We'll read together as a congregation Psalm 21, verses 1 through 13. Psalm 21. O Lord, Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation how greatly he exults. You have given him his heart's desire, and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. 
For you made him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth, and their offspring from among the children of men. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. Though you will put them to fight, you will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. How about now? Okay. So I spent the week in Minnesota, and I took a, a red eye there on Monday morning and a red eye back on uh, late Thursday night. And I, I usually try to do something productive in the airport, but I was a little brain dead, so I ended up just watching people for a little while. And as I watched people, some sitting there, and, and, and maybe this is the wrong place to make this assessment, but I, I was watching their eyes, and there was a lot of eyes that they just didn't move. There was no life in them. On the plane, I turned around at one point, and I was, I was looking backwards, and there was a young lady there, and her eyes were dead still. And the rest around them were focused on, on phones. And it, I was thinking about this passage, because I, I had to prepare to teach Psalm 21, and particularly about joy. Joy is one of those elusive emotions which we're commanded to. It's, it's called a gift of the Spirit, so it's given to us. And, and yet, when, when we go to reach for it, what, what is joy? And when we look around us, it, it seems like there is an epidemic of joylessness. And in our culture, this is, this is not new, but we have uh, advanced ourselves to make new ways in order to try to remove pain. And in, in those attempts, we've also removed joy. So uh, God calls us through suffering to maturity into glory. So there, there's, there's a life that's filled with toil and sorrow, but we know that that is a gift from God. That was the lesson of James, count it all joy, my brethren, whenever you, whenever you encounter any kind, all kinds of trials, because God has given to them to us for a good blessing, a, a good gift. And yet, like Adam and Eve, we try to circumvent God's plans. We can do it through, through drugs. I had a coworker a number of years ago who told me that he was depressed, and so he went and he got depression medication, and it scared him. Because it, it didn't just remove the sorrow, it removed everything. There was no feeling left. So he had, he had no depression, he had no joy, he, he had no emotion whatsoever. And when he tried to back off of that, that drug, it, he, he went through violent swings, and he had to take, take himself off of it very slowly. So, so that's one, one example of where we try to avoid pain, but in so doing, we we remove God's good gift, the, the joy that he gives. 
We can do it through all kinds of other means. There's, there's lesser means. If you want to remove yourself from the pain of the world, you can do it with Candy Crush. Just keep on playing until you forget who you are. But you notice in, in all of those ventures, it's like a, a miniature of, of Ecclesiastes in which Solomon could take and, and, and he could pursue all kinds of pursuits apart from God, and yet there's nothing at the end. There, there is no victory. We don't have sorrow because it's, it's set apart from the world, but there's, there's no joy. And Psalm 21 is a psalm that calls us to joy, but it does so from a, a new perspective. And so I included, again, an outline in your bulletin. Remember, we've been going through the psalms, um, and we're in this section from Psalm 15 to 24. And by way of reminder, the psalms are united in the story that they're proclaiming to us. They teach us both the entirety of God's story, and they teach us how to sing and praise and proclaim so that the words of the story come out of our mouths back to one another and, and back to God. And in this story, in Psalm 14, which is not on here, there, there is a, a problem that's set up from the, from the beginning of the Psalter. God has called his wise person, the righteous king. He says he's anointed him, set him on Mount Zion, and yet there's this question of who is this wise king? And by the time you get to the 14th Psalm, we, we know those words well. There is no one who does good. If there's no one who does good, who, who is the wise king, the righteous king that will be anointed and set on Mount Zion, who will punish the wicked and vindicate the righteous, who will bring the justice of God from heaven? Who is that man if there is none who does righteous, none who seek after God? And so Psalm 15, remember, begins with the question, who can ascend the holy hill? Who can ascend and enter into the tent of God? And that list, if you pay attention carefully, although it applies to us, it, it, in the end, it is one that we fall short of, that King David fell short of, Solomon fell short of, and, and straight down, down the row, who can ascend and enter that tent? Well, there is a covenantal way to enter, but it has to look forward to a true and a better king. And so only by, in Psalm 16, clinging to Yahweh, clinging to the pleasures of that tent, do we look forward in fullness to the person of Jesus. Psalm 17 and 18 then were the lament, the plea of that king, both King David and the coming King Jesus, and we, we resonate with that. We sing it in the first person, a plea in which God has confronted us as he did Jesus with the cords of death, the snares of, of trouble that entangle us, that want to pull us down into the pit, and yet in God's goodness he answers. Remember Psalm 18, he, he rides through the heavens to our aid on the wings of the wind, his cherubim, his chariot comes, and God comes in his terrific fury to vindicate, to justify, and to rescue. That's the story of the Psalter, and where we've come to last week and this week, Psalm 20 and 21, they, they are parallel in the structure of this part of the Psalter with Psalm 18. They tell the same story, but if you remember from last week, they tell the story from the first person plural as you're singing it. So Psalm 20 was a petition for the king, but it's a petition written in, in the plural. Unlike Psalm 17, which is a lament, a call out to God, and Psalm 18, which is an expression of, of, of praise to God, those are first person singular. So when we sing them, we should and we do think of, of, of David and the fulfillment in Jesus, 
but they apply then in that first person to us as we sing them back to God. God, the same God who rescued David, the same God who rescued Jesus and put him on the throne, comes and he rides through the heaven to our aid. He makes us and calls us righteous, and he answers our petitions, and he elevates us with our Savior Jesus. But in Psalm 20 and 21, we step back and we sing in the first person plural. It gives us a different perspective. We sing we lament, we pray on behalf of our king in, in Psalm 20. So we're praying for the, the rescue, the vindication of the king that God has promised. Save him from his enemies, make him be wrapped up in your name. Save, verse, verse 9 of Psalm 20, save, O Yahweh, and may the king answer us in the day that we call. And in Psalm 21, then we have the response of praise because God has saved his king. We, the people, David wrote the psalm, but we, the people, sing it. And you'll notice in verse 13, we, we will sing and we will praise your power. But we do it by looking at the primary recipient, the king. I gave you, a, I, I printed it out this time because uh, there's a little bit more to the structure of Psalm 21. Uh, so we'll we'll go through that slowly. I'm not going to give you I'm not going to give you the structure all at once. But if if you come to Psalm 21, let let's read that as we begin. We've read it out loud. I think we're going to sing it as well. But I want you to hear it read. Oh Yahweh, in your strength the king will be glad, and in your salvation how greatly he will rejoice. You've given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessing of good. You set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you have placed upon him, for you make him a blessing forever. You make him joyful with the gladness of your face. For the king trusts in Yahweh, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a fiery oven in the time of your face. And Yahweh will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will devour them. And their fruit you will destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the sons of men. Though they spread out evil against you, and though they schemed schemes, they will not be victorious. For you will make them Turn their shoulder, and you'll establish your bowstrings at their face. Be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength, and we will sing and praise your power. If you would pray with me. Father, we come to your word, spoken for us, for our benefit, so that we can hear it, we can take it on our lips and we can know you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would know what you have done for our King Jesus, that we would be able to proclaim it with joy and adoration, and that, Lord, you would help us to follow in his footsteps, that you would fill us with the joy that comes from knowing that our Savior Jesus has not just suffered and died, but he suffered and died and then raised up and sits at your right hand having been raised on high and having been given the name which is above every name. 
Lord, we are united with you and we're encouraged when we hear your words, the truth about what you've already done and the promises of what you are doing. And so, Lord, I pray that we would take it to heart, that we would believe it in word, but that we would apply it and that it would work itself out in the emotion of joy, one that does not, will not be removed. We pray these things in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. So you'll notice that like many of the psalms, there is an inclusio in this psalm. So the, the psalm begins with a proclamation of the trust of the king in Yahweh's strength. Oh, Yahweh, in your strength, the king will be glad. It's just another word for joy. If you're sporting the new King, uh, king James, it will say, Oh, Yahweh, in your strength, the king will joy as a verb. And in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. There's two different words for joy there. The, the king is rejoicing, and he's rejoicing in the double benefit of the strength of Yahweh and the salvation given by Yahweh. And then look in verse 13. We see the response. Why are we singing this? Why are the people singing about the king? Verse 13, but be raised up, O Yahweh, in your strength. That same strength from verse 1 in which the king rejoices, and we, the congregation, the assembly underneath the king, will sing and praise your power. And so there's a mirrored response in which the king rejoices because of God's salvation, because by the strength of his hand, God has come and rescued this king. He's established him, set him on Mount Zion, put the, the crown of gold upon his head. And we, the people looking on, we sing and we praise God because he's done this good thing. It's only good, of course, if the king is good. And if there is a reflection in the reign and the rule of that king for his people. As you work your through, way through the Psalter, if, if you were to start without the New Testament, you might begin with this, uh, some ambiguity about who this king will be. But as you work your way through these songs, what you'll find out is that there is an in increasing ambiguity, not, not about who he, he, who he is, but in the way that the language is written so that many times you cannot distinguish between the promised king and Yahweh God. They're, they're written in such a way that, that you read it and you say, is this talking about David? Is this talking about God, God the Father in heaven? Is it talking about the Jesus to come? And you can't tell. And that's on purpose. As we read and sing through the ages, God's people then have to come to grips with the fact that this promised king, the only way that God's promises come to fruition from Abraham through David is if God himself takes on the mantle of kingship, if he comes to the earth and he is the one that's raised up and sits at the right hand of God and rules from the heavens. And in that act, we're glad because all of God's promises flowed then down through the king. The new covenant's given in, in Ezekiel, and, and the passage right before it, there's, there's a promise. It says that no longer shall the fathers eat sour grapes and the children's teeth be set on edge. But the problem is, of course, with an anointed king, when God's blessings are funneled through the king, when the king sins, when you have a, a Rehoboam on the throne or... or even worse, many of the kings we've been reading about in Second Chronicles, the entire assembly suffers. They're all led astray. And yet the promise that we have in the new covenant is that Jesus is king, that he's sitting and reigning on high. And so there is no longer 
a father, a king, that will eat sour grapes and set our teeth on edge because our, our mediator, the one who showers the blessings of the heavenly father on us, is God himself in the person of Jesus. And so this psalm then is a celebration looking forward to that promise. The people could sing it of King David and of King Solomon in part as they, as they reign because there is justice that reigns through them. Because the sun comes out in the morning, and as we've been thinking about in 2 Samuel 23, that sun comes out and it, and it blesses the grass, the people, and they grow up. They're, they're full of life. Okay, en enough with that, but one observation here. We, we don't always think about, when, when we come to the subject of joy, we don't always think about the fact that, as in this psalm, Jesus is the first to rejoice. O Yavi, in your strength the king will be glad. David was glad, but ultimately Jesus is the one that rejoices. And so the, we have joy because he has joy. We learn from him. In every aspect, we follow in the footsteps of our Savior. Remember Jesus called his disciples. He said, follow me. You're going to do what I do. You're going to go through pain and suffering and death and resurrection, and you're going to be lifted up as I am lifted up. And the end of that is joy. And we'll discover then in this psalm the joy that he's calling us to. What, what does it mean, and how do we distinguish it from the temporal joys of this life, which the Bible recognizes Bible recognizes that, that there's, there's joy in children, there's joy in a cup of wine, there's joy, there's joy in, in the grass growing on the hills. But our joy, according to John 16, can never be taken away. It is not removed. It, it presses through from the past into the future, and it cannot be shaken. O Yavi, in your strength the king will be glad in your salvation, how greatly he will rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. So immediately there's a reason given for this joy, and we're told by the word Selah to, to pause, to consider, that the king is glad, he rejoices, and by the way, those two words for, for joy, there's a sense of, um, the first one has uh, the connotation of brightness, so not so different from, from glory. You can think about someone's face that shines because, because they're happy. And the second word there in verse 1, rejoicing, it has the, the root means to spin around. So you're dancing. You've got so much joy that your feet can't stay still. And you're leaping and dancing as David was before the ark as it, as it came into Jerusalem. That's the kind of joy that God gave his king, Jesus. And he did it by giving him his heart's desire, and you have not withheld the request of his lips, Selah. Well, what is, what is joy? If you, go, if you go look it up, there's a lot of definitions that, that maybe don't quite make sense. Joy is, is pleasure in having been given what you're looking for. And there, there can be an evil way to have joy, a temporal way to have joy that, that won't last. But nonetheless, it's pleasure. So in the context of marriage, there's joy because you're given to one another. And you can think of then of Psalm 45, if you remember that psalm. The psalmist is writing, and he's writing, and he's filled with joy because of the, the goodness of the event where the king is taking his bride. 
and he comes in splendor and majesty, and they're united as one, and there's pleasure in that relationship. We take joy in being with God, and that's, that's the emphasis then of this psalm. But why does he say you've given him his heart's desire? You have not withheld the request of his lips. You think about David. What did David request? What was his heart's desire? As we move through the psalm, part of his desire, and and we're going to come to that in just a second, is life. He's calling on God. He's lamenting to God. The cords of death confronted me. The snares of Sheol, they, they entangled me. Save me, O Lord, from my enemies because they're all around me. And so he's calling on God for life. But if you think a little more carefully about David's life as he ascends to the throne, he calls on God, and he calls on God in, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he asks him, he says, I dwell in a house of cedar, and I want to. I want to build a house for you. Why would that bring David joy? It's because having a permanent house where God dwells in the midst of his people. It's the same emphasis as this progression of Psalms. Who can ascend to the hill of the Lord? Who can enter his house? Who can be with him? Well, there's joy there because at the right hand of God, Psalm 16, there's pleasures forevermore. When we, when we dwell underneath his face, there is joy. Our marriages are a a metaphor for this kind of joy where we enter into God's house and we rest in peace underneath his face. And so David desires for God to dwell in their midst, not temporarily, not moving about, but permanently, so that that house of God is planted, abiding within the nation. And here he says, you have given him his heart's desire, you've not withheld the request of his lips, but of course God did withhold that request temporarily. David had to wait through death, and his son Solomon then was allowed to build this house, the house that David desired. It was his heart's desire is what God tells us. And his son Solomon built it, and so David had to rejoice looking forward to the fulfillment of what God was doing through his son. That teaches us, right? Our joy Our joy isn't just with the pleasure that we possess. Instead, joy like faith and hope, it reaches into the future. Remember from from Hebrews chapter chapter 11 that faith is the, the essence of things hoped for, the assurance of things to come. So it reaches in and it grabs a hold of what God has promised and it brings in action to what we do right now. We act in accordance with the future, but joy is the emotion that belongs to that fullness that God has given. So if we were to fast forward in history, we stand in the presence of God for eternity, we'll be filled with joy forever because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. By faith, we grasp a hold of that future and we bring the not just the actions, which are done by faith, as we saw in James, but the joy that's associated with those actions. We, we have now. Keep your finger in Psalm 21 and flip over to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, there's trouble in the church, 
is some fighting ladies, which is true of every church. And in verse 4, he says, Rejoice. Well, there's fighting men too. Don't get me wrong. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say rejoice. He gives that impossible uh, command. Rejoice always. Verse 5, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Now, he says rejoice always. Rejoice now in the midst of your trouble, your disagreement, your suffering. And Philippians is all about suffering. It's calling them to suffer. And Paul says rejoice in the Lord always. Rejoice. And again, I say it again, rejoice. Don't mistake me. I'm not giving you something that's impossible. But instead, be forbearing. Let your forbearing spirit be made known to all men. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. And so because the Lord is, is right at the door, because the fullness of joy is promised, it's coming, bring that joy into now. Rejoice right now because it's just about here. And so we grab that joy and, and we have it now, and we accomplish that by, verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer and supplication, let your th with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, so that we set aside, not covering up the sorrow, but by depositing it at the footsteps of our Savior, we're anxious for nothing, and the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so that we think about whatever's honorable, whatever's pure, whatever's right, whatever's lovely, and the joy of Christ fills our heart. This is what he calls us to, because Jesus is at the door, in the words of, of Revelation. Because he's standing at the door, we can rejoice. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowing but rejoicing, simultaneously, hand in hand. And this is uniquely Christian. We don't cover up the sorrow. We don't wipe it away. It's real. It's there. And so the Psalms are filled with laments. They're filled with even what sounds like complaints to God. We don't deny the reality of the present. Instead, we grasp a hold of what God has promised with one foot in the past, knowing what God has done. So there's security and trusting in God and with one foot in the future, knowing the fullness of what he is bringing us to. And so at all times, we can rejoice like our Savior Jesus. So back in, back in Psalm 21, you've given his heart's desire and you've not withheld the request of his lips. Uh, one, more, one more time, keep your finger there and flip forward to Psalm seven, or sorry, John 17. And now we see Jesus, and he's entered into the upper room, and he's lifting his eyes up into heaven, and he's praying, and he's praying then his heart's desire. So what God says, of our king, you have not withheld his heart's desire. You've not withheld the request of his lips. And he says in, verse, in 17, verse 1, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all mankind, that to all whom you have given him he may give life. And this is life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but Jesus is asking for the same thing that David asked for. He's asking for the permanent house of God, that 
God's saints would be built up. And remember, the emphasis of John 17 is that his people would be unified and that God's name would be placed upon them. God's name dwells in his house. And so Jesus in, in John 17, as he's about to go to the cross, he asks of the Father, and he says, I want my name to dwell in them. I want you to give them life, to make them one even as we are one, so that my name will dwell in them forever, perfect them in unity. That's what Jesus prays for. And in Psalm 21, when we sing this psalm today, looking backwards, we can sing with joy because God has and is fulfilling the request of our Savior. He's first done it by lifting up Jesus, who's called the first fruits. He's given him life. So if you, if you keep reading in verse 3 then, for you have met him with the blessings of good, and you've set a crown of fine gold on his head. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him. John 17, 2, what kind of life did he ask? He asked not just for himself. He asked for us as well, that you would give them life. He asked life of you, and you gave it to him length of days forever and ever. So moving backwards, just, just a touch, verse 3, for you have met him with the blessings of good things. Uh, a couple comments there. The word for met or, or go on ahead is the same word that's translated confront. So when you go to confront an enemy or you confront one of the wicked, which is how it's used in Psalm 17 and 18, God confronts the wicked and he confronts him with, with their own demise. Now God has confronted his king. And so th there's this juxtaposition which jars us. What is God going to do to his king? He confronts him, but he confronts him with the blessing of good. And so he calls his king out and he, he goes on ahead of him and he gives him good things. Remember, remember James chapter 1, the, the father of lights who dwells in heaven above, he's given us every good thing. All good things come from his hand. He's done that for our Savior Jesus. Verse 3, you've set a crown of fine gold upon his head. So in thinking about then the reasons why the king rejoices, God has given him his heart's desire. He's met him. He's confronted him with good, with the blessings. And, and that word blessings should make us think of the Abrahamic covenant. And we'll see that on the other side of this internal chiasm. God has given him, he's blessed him, and then he's set a crown upon his head. So he's fulfilled his, his, uh, his covenant with David. He's made him the king anointed, my son, set on Mount Zion, the one who reigns in the name of God. In verse 4, as I already read, he asked life of you and you gave it to him length of days for forever and ever. Uh, we won't go back and look at how David asked for that, but it's scattered throughout all the Psalter. Uh, it goes back even to Moses as they're, as they're moving through the land. God gives them a promise. He says, if you want life, if you want length of days, here's what you must do. Obey me and dwell in the land and, and you'll have it, length of days. But God expands the answer. David asked life, Jesus asked life, and God gives not just life, but length of days. And we're going to see how he juxtaposes that in the second half of the psalm with, with the wicked. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you place upon him. You'll notice if, if you're looking at the outline, there is this internal chiastic structure in verses 3 through 6. The center of it is life. 
The king rejoices because God has given him his heart's desire. His heart's desire is life, but flowing out from all of that is this splendor and majesty, the crown that he set on his head, and the blessing that comes all the way from Abraham. And so if you, if you look from uh, outward in, we have the Abrahamic blessing, then the rule that comes with the Davidic blessing, and internally is life. God gives life. He's fulfilling his covenant promises through his king. We read Psalm 8 this morning. His glory is great through your salvation, splendor and majesty you have placed upon him. Remember Psalm 8? What is man that you, that you care for him, or the son of man that you consider him? Yet you have crowned him with splendor and majesty, with glory and honor, and you bless him forever. Keep your finger here and flip to Hebrews chapter 2. When we sing this song, the song of the joy of our King, God is training our hearts through it. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5, after having introduced this book with the person of Jesus, seated at the right hand of God, full of the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, we read this, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, which concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you care about him? You've made him a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, and you have appointed him over the work of your hands, and you've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him, but now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, Jesus. So thinking through Psalm 8 and God's promises to his people, here in Hebrews as they're waiting, they say, we do not yet see the fullness of this promise, but we do see Jesus. We see the beginning of it, the firstborn from the dead, having been raised to the right hand of the Father. We see him. When you look at the despair of the world around us, it flows out from the unfulfilled, unmet expectations of life. God put eternity in man's heart. He made us to long for more. He made us to long for the fullness of Psalm 8 because God made us in his image. And when we look, look at the failure of that image, the sin that comes in our, our weakness and our powerlessness, there's despair, there's sorrow. And so we want to avoid it. But the author of the Hebrews says, Trust in God and look at Jesus. We see Jesus made a little while lower than the angels. So we see him in the position of suffering so that through the suffering of death, verse 9, he will be crowned with glory and honor. He'll have the fullness of Psalm 8, the splendor and majesty, the crown of fine gold placed upon his head. We see him having moved through suffering and death and crowned with glory so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Jesus has moved on ahead of us. The author of the Hebrews calls him the author of our salvation, the prince that leads the way. He's, he's the trailblazer ahead, ahead of us. So flip over to Hebrews chapter 12.
Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, fixing our eyes. That's that same idea, looking at Jesus, the author, the trailblazer, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. So Jesus, in looking through suffering and death into life, the reason that he endured according to the author of the Hebrews, is because of the joy set before him, because he was looking at and grasping the joy that's coming. And the author of the Hebrews calls us to consider him and to follow after him. He is the trailblazer, the one that goes ahead of us, so that when you move through the rest of Hebrews 12, he says, resist, resist sin to the point of shedding of blood. Lay it all aside because we're running after Jesus, the one who's gone on ahead of us through the grave into resurrection and sits at the right hand of God. And so when we sing this psalm, the song of the joy of the king, it should call us in faith to pursue him. We have joy because he has joy, because we see him seated at the right hand of God. We see the fullness of what God is doing through him in us because he's calling us into his house, the place that we had no right to go, according to Psalm 15, because we're not those who are pure of heart with clean hands whose eyes don't look upon evil. Psalm 21, one, one final comment there before we, we move quickly to the next part. You, verse, seven, verse 6, sorry, you make him most blessed forever, or you can translate it, you make him a blessing forever. You can translate it either way. And the, the second way should remind you exactly of what God told Abraham. I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to, I'm going to make, build your house so that, that there's going to be children as numerous as the sand of the seashore and the stars in the heaven, and I'm going to give you a land to live in, and I am going to make you a blessing so that those who bless you will be blessed and those who cursed you will be cursed. You will make him a blessing forever. So this king, who falls in the line of King David, is the fullness of that Abrahamic promise. He is the blessing forever so that all who bless him, all who align themselves with this king, and the war that began in Genesis chapter 3, where there's a distinction made between the sons of God and the sons of Satan, all who bless this one will be blessed. All who align themselves with the King Jesus who's been raised up and conquers will follow in suit. And you make him joyful with gladness. So two more words for joy there. You make him joyful with gladness in your presence or in your face. In the house of God, we see God's face. And we are filled with joy because at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The fullness of what God has promised us, what we're made for, having been made in his image, is there in his house under his gaze. Verse 7, in the middle of the psalm, uh, why? How can the king rejoice? We'll see in the psalm that all is not done yet. The king rejoices because he trusts in Yahweh. So Jesus, just like us, possessed faith. He looked forward to the promise. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and therefore he sat down at the right hand of God. And so consider him, this king trusts in Yahweh, and through the loving kindness or the loyal mercy, through the mercies of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Remember that word shaken has moved us through this sequence of psalms. So who can ascend into the holy hill of the Lord? Who can dwell in his house? 
He who does all these things. We, we went through Psalm 15. He who does these things, he who enters in, he will never be shaken. Psalm 16. He who dwells in the house of God, he who holds on to him, who finds pleasure at his right hand, he will never be shaken. Psalm 17, David cries out to God. He says, examine me, look at me. My feet have not shaken. I haven't been moved from your house. And all of these things should remind us of King Saul who had that crown placed upon his head and yet it was shaken loose. There was a temporality to the kingship of Saul because he did not grasp a hold of the promises of God. And so when he offered his burnt offerings, they were not welcome because he didn't do it through, through the sacrifice of Christ. And yet this king trusts in Yahweh, and through his faithfulness, through his mercy, he will not be shaken. And so we see the, the, the security of the promise of Psalm 2. This king will be set on high, and he will never be shaken like Saul. Instead, verse 8, we have a parallel structure, which talks now not about those who enjoy with the king the promises of God, but those who are on the outside of the tent. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. Is this talking about Yahweh or about the king? You, you can't tell. It's both because Yahweh is the king. And just forewarning, when we get to Psalm 24, then that becomes explicit. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors. Why? So that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? Yahweh of hosts. He is the king of glory. He says of his enemies, you'll make them as a fiery oven in the time of your face. And so the picture here is, it starts in Genesis 15 when God cuts the covenant with Abraham. He comes as a fiery oven, as a, as a, as a, smoking, uh, a smoking pit, and he walks through the two sides of the, the cut animals. And he says of his enemies, God's going to come visit. Your hand will find out those who hate you, and you will make them as that same fiery oven in the day, in the time of your face. It's that same word in which the presence of God is exposed. So we know, we know from 2 Corinthians 3, from the whole history of the New Testament, or Old Testament, that God covers his face for a time. He has mercy, a common grace upon, upon mankind in which his face is covered. But when it's exposed, the sun who reigns in righteousness, Psalm 19, who comes in the morning, nothing will be hidden from that sun's heat. And so Yahweh, verse 9, will swallow them in his wrath. He'll eat them up, and fire will devour them. So the wicked will be consumed. Verse 10, their fruit will, you will destroy from the earth, and their seed from among the sons of men. I gave you this outline so that you can notice the parallelism between these two structures. The center of them. The center of the structures in which the king trusts in Yahweh and he rejoices in Yahweh is in verse 4 and verse 10. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, length of days forever and ever. Verse 10, their fruit you will destroy from the earth and their seed from among the, sin, the, the, the sons of men. This, is, this isn't surprising to us, but it is a reminder that there are in the end only two sets of children. Those who dwell in the house and those who are outside the house who's whose worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched, such that their seed will be cut off. I was reminded of uh, David as he comes and he's rejoicing before God 
as the ark comes into Jerusalem. And remember, he's wearing a linen ephod. He looks like a priest, and he's leaping and dancing before God, and his wife, Michael, despises him. Well, there's a judgment associated with that. Because she despised him, because she despised the joy of God, it says that she had no children to the day of her death. God cut her off. And so those outside, ultimately, their fruit will be destroyed from the earth and their seed from the sons of men. There is no future in which hiding from sorrow through, through drowning it out with, with candy crush, with medicine, it, it, it's, it's a lie about the future because there are only two houses. We either find ourselves as sons of God or sons of the devil. And those who are enemies of the king will be destroyed. And in this, we have great joy because we dwell in the house of God through the person and the work of Jesus. Verse 11, though they spread out evil against you, and you should be reminded then of Matthew 12, Matthew 20, where the Jews plot together against Jesus, or where Absalom and Abdon plot against David. Though they spread out evil against you, and devised a plot, they will not prevail. And the word spread out, by the way, there is what you do to pitch a tent. So you spread out another house. They're spreading out evil and encamping against the king. And those who do that, they will not prevail, for you'll make them turn their back. The word for shoulder right up to the neck. So you've got your foot on their neck, and you will establish your bowstrings at their faces. And so God is going to destroy them. How he does it in verse 12, the word bowstrings is not the normal word for bow. So this is a word that is used of the cords that hold the tent, the tabernacle. And so it, you take a step back, you have this picture. God's house is planted among his people, and he's taking and he's pulling back the bowstrings of his house. Psalm 127, remember, tells us that his children, the ones he puts in his house, are arrows in a quiver which he aims at his enemy. And so God, God is aiming his people at the wicked. He's taking us, he's putting us in his bowstring, in the cords of his house. We're the arrows in his quiver in which God executes in the end judgment upon the nations. That's the end of the psalm. Verse 13, this conclusion. So when we sing this, what happens? When we sing about the king rejoicing, in the end we say, be raised up, be exalted, O Yahweh, in your strength. Because that dichotomy is clear to us. We, we forget it day by day that there's sons of God and sons of the devil, that there's two houses. But we have the benefit, the joy, the pleasure of having been brought into the house of God having his name planted upon us. And so we can sing with joy that because our Savior is lifted up, we, we know the end of this story. So be raised up. Be exalted, O Yahweh. And the idea is in Christ's ascension as he's raised up to the right hand of God. Now we can say with Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not height, not depth, not any other created thing. Be raised up, O Yahweh, in your strength, and we will sing and praise your power. So we come before him today into his house to rejoice. We do it by singing.
because that's how God made us to proclaim joy with the Psalms. One last place I'd, I'd like to turn. Um, turn with me to Nehemiah 8. Some of us are given to depression, can struggle with apathy. Some of us are given to finding joy in the wrong places. And those kinds of sins have to be confessed. It is because of a lack of faith. When we cling to Christ, we can possess simultaneously sorrow and joy because we know that the Lord is at hand. He stands at the door coming. Nehemiah 8. Let's read in verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, the people stood up. And Ezra blessed Yahweh, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And then they bowed low and worshipped Yahweh with their faces to the ground. Jeshua, Bani, Sherabai, Jamin, Akub, Shebathai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, This day is holy to Yahweh your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of Yahweh is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. And so you notice here that as the law is read, there's two, two phases to the understanding. First, they hear the law and they weep because they know they're in sin, because they've fallen short. And so there's grieving, but then as they explain further to them, they lift them up and they say, stop weeping, stop grieving, stop mourning three times because this day, the day in which Yahweh shows his face to his people, this day is holy. And in this day, do not grieve, do not mourn. Instead, the joy of Yahweh is your stronghold. You've entered into the house of God. And so for us today, if we've repented of our sins, God has forgiven us. There is a beginning with grief, but God raises us up into this house, into this stronghold, and he says, the joy of Yahweh, he welcomes us into his joy to participate with him, the one for which Jesus endured and has sat down at the right hand of God, so he's in the presence of God. He calls us into that presence to be with him and to rejoice so that today we, when we stand and sing in a minute, we stand and sing proclaiming joy because of our king, because our king rejoices in the goodness of God, we follow suit, because our king is now the, bride and the, the bridegroom and the son who reigns on high and the one who dispenses to us the blessing of good things just as he has received from God. If you would stand with me and let's pray.
Father, we confess this morning that we stand in your house on the basis of our King. We could not enter in unless he made a way for us. But today, because we see that Jesus has gone on ahead of us, he's been raised up to your right hand, and Lord, today you call us. Not, not just here in this earthly sanctuary, but you say in Ephesians that you've raised us up into the heavenlies. You've seated us with him in the heavenlies. And so, Lord, today in your house, we proclaim your glory and praise as we're commanded. We sing and play instruments and proclaim that our God is strong. He's established, he's strong, and he will not be moved. And because he's not moved, because he is secure, our joy will not be taken away, and we remain secure. Father, you are good. And so as we sing and pray and eat, we pray that you would be satisfied in our joy over you and your good work. We pray these things in the name of Jesus.